0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. One of the stories that didn't quite fit into the main podcast narrative is that of the Oberammergau Passion Play. Other Passion Plays are available, but this one is undoubtedly the most famous one and the one with the longest run. Its roots stretch back into the medieval period and it still thrives in an updated form today, making it, I think, unique in theatre history. In 1980 I had the opportunity to see the play while on a family holiday, and although I do have flashes of memory about it, I was really too young to have developed much critical faculty and was also sadly lacking in a good grip of German. It was a good job that it's a familiar story. I'm not going to talk too much about the content of the play here, as I think it's safe to assume that you, like my younger self, know the story. This episode will be more about the history of the play, some of the logistics of the production and about some of the issues that they have faced. But just so you know, the play opens with the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and then follows the story from there through to the crucifixion and the resurrection in 16 acts. Oberammergau is a small village in the Bavarian Alps. If you take the typical idea of Bavarian mountain scenery, well, That is what Oberammergau and its environs look like. The picturesque mountain castle of Neuschwanstein, built by Bavarian King Ludwig II, is close by. The village exists because it was on the old Roman route through the Alps that ran from Verona to Augsburg. Although situated in a valley, it sits 2,750 feet above sea level, but is surrounded by higher mountains that reach heights of up to 5,600 feet. Its prime position on the route through the mountains meant villagers could supplement an agricultural living or even make a living as hosts and suppliers to passing travellers, making a stop before travelling higher to cross the mountains. Heavy snow in the winter is common in the region, reducing the stream of travellers to a trickle, so incomes were also supplemented with homemade tools and trinkets, particularly wood carving, for which there's a strong tradition in the village to this day. Something to pass the long winter nights in front of the fire while you kept warm and listened to your livestock kept for the winter in the room underneath. But that good position also meant the area was fought over as the Germanic tribes took over the vacated Roman lands until they came into the hands of the Dukes of Bavaria. That rather skips over a lot of complex history about the succession of Germanic princes and dukes and electors. But that is a whole podcast series of its own, and I'll leave it just as a side note here. Suffice to say that the influence of Ludwig II remains large in the area, thanks to his castles, his support for Wagner, his favourite composer, and his generosity towards Oberammergau itself. But his story, and that of his successors, is a sad one. He had some mental health challenges, and what was ruled as his suicide at the time was quite possibly an assassination. His successors were troubled in similar ways and the last king of Bavaria lost his position at the beginning of the First World War. As you know, the medieval cycle plays have their roots somewhere back in the 14th century and many European towns and villages got together to perform religious plays on carts, on special saints and feast days that became holiday celebrations. In that century, in 1330 to be exact, the monastery of Etal was founded. Just a one-hour walk from Oberammergau, the monastic community there became the centre of local administration and inevitably came to influence the Passion Play itself. For Oberammergau, the story of the Passion Play starts in 1632. That is, of course, long after the cycle play tradition had morphed into the morality play and the theatrical interlude in other countries in northern Europe but the tradition of the religious cycle play lingered in the Catholic regions of the Germanic lands, and Bavaria was a Catholic heartland. By the 1630s, the European continent was a decade into the Thirty Years' War, essentially a religious conflict, and Bavaria was not protected from its effects, which was not only the opposing armies moving back and forth across the land, but the plague, the Black Death, that was on the march in their wake. In 1631, the Protestant army of the Swedish king Gustav Adolphus had won what seemed to be a decisive victory over the Catholics, and his army pushed through to Wittenberg and Munich. In the process, the hinterland of these two important cities was ravaged by gangs of soldiers who had been underpaid and poorly supplied. With no sympathy for the local inhabitants, they took what they needed – food, livestock and shelter. Locals were murdered and raped indiscriminately in some of the most brutal times that the continent has ever seen. As their push through the country helped the spread of the plague, the disease claimed more than a million lives throughout Saxony and Bavaria alone. Thanks to its natural isolation and the management of the local council, Oberammergau had managed to keep the plague at bay. The fighting came close when Attel and its monastery were attacked, but the village was spared – and by keeping a constant vigil and controlling the movement of strangers, the village stayed free of the disease. Their defences were broken when a villager, who'd been living away, was overcome by homesickness and a desire to attend the anniversary celebrations in his home village. Aware of the restrictions, he stole back under the cover of darkness. He was already infected, and brought the plague into his own village and family. Within months, 84 inhabitants had died of the plague. As such visitations were always seen as a punishment from God, the whole village met in the church in July 1633 and prayed for deliverance. In these circumstances, making a collective vow to perform public penance was not unusual, and the members of the church council made a solemn vow before the altar that if God would deliver them from the disease, they would perform every tenth year a play of the Saviour's bitter suffering and death. From that day, the records say, there were no more deaths in the village. God, it seems, had been appeased by a promise of a bit of theatre. What makes the passion play of Oberammergau so remarkable is its longevity, and the almost unbroken performance record in accordance with its original promise. It is remarkable that it has survived as an institution despite wars, military occupations, and even anti-religious edicts during a period of secularisation. It is this persistence which has given the Oberammergau play its prominence amongst all other such productions, and its renown throughout the Christian world. The first performance was in 1634, and it was repeated every ten years until 1674, when it was decided to bring the performance into the first year of each decade. Therefore, the next performance was in 1680. And was repeated each decade until 1770 when it was banned by a decree of the Prince Elector of Bavaria who said that the, the theater stage is no place for the greatest secret of our holy religion. The 1780 and the 1790 performances were given under special permission while that edict remained enforced as was the 1800 play but this was interrupted by the Napoleonic wars and the performance was completed in 1801. After some wrangling over the script, delayed performances were given in 1811 and 1815. 1870 saw another year's delay thanks to the Franco-Prussian War, and the 1920 performances were delayed for two years thanks to the post-World War economic turmoil in Germany and the impact of the Spanish flu epidemic. In 1934, additional performances were given to mark the 300th anniversary of the play. And then in 1940, the play was cancelled due to the Second World War. Since then, things have run smoothly, including special performances in 1984 to mark the 350th anniversary. Until the 2020 play was delayed, until 2022, thanks to the Covid-19 pandemic. The first performance was a one-off, played at Easter, which of course was one of the traditional times for religious drama. The records from 1880 mention performances being restricted to only five that year, so we can imply that between the original production and then, there had been at least some years where more performances were given. Those five performances were noted as not being enough to satisfy the demand from visitors to the village. This was the year that the travel entrepreneur Thomas Cook saw the play and after that began to organise travel packages to the village but even by 1840 the play was becoming known internationally and had begun to attract pilgrims from other parts of Europe. In 1870 21 performances were given, one of which was attended by the future King Edward VII. By 1900 the number of performances had risen to 246 and in modern times there are usually 90 or so performances which are seen by about half a million people. For the delayed 2020 run of the play that took place last year, officially the 42nd production of the play, the season ran from the middle of May to early October, during which time 103 performances were given. So not surprisingly, the production is steeped in traditions, but these have, to an extent, been moulded to modern sensibilities with the passing of time. To take part, a person must have been born in the village or lived there for at least 20 years. At the end of the Second World War there was a large influx of refugees from Eastern Europe which expanded the population of the village quite significantly. So from about 1970 these incomers became eligible to take part in the play. Any child who attends the local primary school can take part regardless of their place of birth. The adherence to tradition has caused some controversy in more recent years and in two respects in particular. An original constraint stated that married women or women over 35, regardless of their marital status, could not take part. The history of the play is peppered with stories of women who postponed weddings in the hope of playing a major female role in the next cycle. However, in 1990, after much heated debate, it was decided that married women would no longer be barred. This didn't go unnoticed, but mostly because one of the women selected to play Mary was the mother of two children, which some felt was inappropriate and gave a British Sunday newspaper a good headline on a quiet weekend. The age restriction was also dropped, this in the year 2000, in order to conform with German sex discrimination laws. The play has also been caught up in controversy over the portrayal of Jews. At the time the play was created, there was little concern for this. Indeed, the original script probably went out of its way to show the Jews as unquestionably the bad guys who murdered Jesus. At the time, the Jewish community in Europe was still just tolerated, especially when they were useful providing money-lending services, for example, but seen as a lower society who deserved their punishment for the death of Jesus collectively. As the script of the play had been little changed since the mid-1800s, the portrayal of Jews in this historically biased and stereotypical way was maintained. The production in the year 2000 saw some big changes to the play, and one of the primary concerns was to correct this anti-Semitic bias, and to bring the script in line with current teaching of the Catholic Church on the subject, as recommended by the Second Vatican Council, when it said, and I quote, one may not portray the Jews as discarded by God or rejected by God, or cursed as though this conclusion could be drawn on the basis of Holy Scripture. The tone of the play was changed to emphasise that Jesus lived and died as an observant Jew, and that his crucifixion was brought about by an envious Jewish faction and a brutal Roman governor. Related changes reduced the storyline featuring the greedy merchants who Jesus throws out of the temple, and the motivation of Judas was changed from greed to an anti-Roman ideology. There were other changes that, in total, meant that although the form of the play was little changed, its message was very much updated to appeal to the broad modern audience. The charge of anti-Semitism remains a concern for the current director, Christian Stuckel, who has directed the production since 1990, and who has been a major force in promoting changes. He's been quoted as saying that the committee remains in constant and deep dialogue with religious representatives. It was in the 2010 production that he depicted Jesus lifting the Torah as the choir sung a version of the Jewish player Shema Israel, which was considered a high point of the play by participants and spectators. For the 2022 production, he introduced a new musical setting in Hebrew for Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? composed by the musical director Markus Schwink. Clearly, this is still an ongoing process and part of the discussion that the play promotes. And to go back to the original performance, this was given in the churchyard, the small village church being too small to accommodate the production. The play soon became well-known locally and a growing audience through the 18th century had to be accommodated. The play moved out of the graveyard and into the field nearby where, in the best traditions of the cycle play, temporary stages and seating were used. A permanent stage was erected in 1815 and construction of a theatre building on the site was completed for the 1830 cycle. The current theatre is on the same site, a site that is only used for the Passion Play and for exhibitions related to the play in the years when it's not in production. The 1830 theatre could seat 5,000 people in an open-air arrangement. The rebuilt playhouse from 1900 seated 4,200, but it was extended when the stage was rebuilt in 1930 to provide seating undercover for 5,200. That number was then reduced to 4,700 to comply with modern fire and safety regulations. For the year 2000 play, there was a major rebuilding project, which was budgeted at a cost of some 13 million Deutschmarks. New seats were put in, accessibility and other facilities improved, and underfloor heating was installed. Now that may seem an excessive concession to comfort, but remember that the audience sits there for some five and a half hours, albeit with a long intermission the theatre was given a new façade and considerable improvements were also made to the backstage area and the technical equipment. In 2010, a retractable glass roof was installed over the stage, which had previously been open to the elements. There are stories over the years of dramatic thunderstorms not uncommon in this mountainous region, appearing at just the right or just the wrong moment for the action of the play, and what one could read into that of God's approval or disapproval but I feel sure that the actors appreciate the added comfort of the new roof when it's needed. The theatre building is not particularly impressive to look at, something of a barn or aircraft hangar in fact, but it does provide the necessary acoustics and staging is still very much in the tradition of the cycle play. The fixed stage buildings are very reminiscent of the houses that were the background to the cycle plays, with each part of the stage providing different locations at different times. Primarily, they represent the residences of Pilate and the high priest of the temple, with the large central area used for the main action of the play. The opposing factions and tensions of the play are therefore set in the very fabric of the stage. Periodically during the production, tableaux called living images of Old Testament scenes appear at the rear of the central stage to enhance the biblical message of the play, which is still an important factor for those on the producing committee and, no doubt, for many in the cast and the audience. Some forty living images are represented during the play and make use of stage machinery to appear and retreat without intruding on the continuing action. The stage is large and lends itself to the en masse movement of the large cast. The use of chorus nods heavily to the Greek traditions, while the medieval origins of the play can be seen in the episodic processional nature of the structure of the play. My abiding memory of my day at the play many years ago is of those crowd scenes. The stage and cast are large enough so that both the ebb and flow of a crowd and the way that a minority on the edge of a crowd can manipulate it to their will could be well represented. I also remember the scene of the eviction of the moneylenders from the temple being particularly effective, especially as it was unintentionally juxtaposed with the sellers of translations of the script making their way constantly around the auditorium. The crucifixion scene was also striking. The actor playing Jesus and those playing the two robbers crucified with him is suspended on the cross for about 20 minutes which is a feat aided by some clever supports hidden in the cross but still a matter of some endurance for the actor. Traditionally the play was presented in two parts during the day starting in the morning, breaking for a long lunch and then resuming in the afternoon. It relied on daylight and there were no special effects apart from the stage machines. Recently, the play has been moved to a 1.30 afternoon start, playing until 4 o'clock for the first part and then resuming at 7 and ending at 9.30. For most, a good meal is taken locally in the break. With the new evening session, the production now makes more use of lighting and stage effects. The backstage efforts are monumental. The production makes use of over 1,000 costumes, many of which have been in use for decades and are valuable. Storage and maintenance of the costumes is a significant responsibility for the small team who make up some of the very few permanent employees of the project. All the costumes are made in the village, and some are replaced for each series. Backstage also includes room for storage of sets and props, some of which are, like the costumes, very old. For example, the table and stools used in the Last Supper scene date back over 200 years. There is no use of makeup or wigs. Hopeful actors grow beards before they know who has been cast and have to maintain them for the duration of the run, except for those selected to play Roman soldiers who are portrayed clean-shaven. There are a total of 130 speaking parts, plus many smaller parts for the crowd scenes. The official record from 2022 production shows the number of people working on the production was 1,769. That was made up of 647 women and 702 men, as well as 420 children. With the performers of the living images, the orchestra and the singers, it is said that at times there can be as many as 600 people on stage. For the 2022 production, there were 20 main roles, which were each performed by two actors sharing their role across the run. The play is, by the nature of the story, heavily slanted towards male parts. Recent attempts have been made to correct this balance by introducing new female roles. For example, previously Pilate's wife's objections to the treatment of Jesus were conveyed to Pilate by a messenger, but now the role has been personified. However, there remains only three of the main parts for women, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and Veronica. Although village members are keen, putting this cast together is a real effort. The village only has a population of about 5,200 persons, meaning that with the cast, singers, musicians, backstage crew and all the support staff, about half the village residents are directly involved with the production. Most of those who are not are providing accommodation, transport and feeding services for the influx of tourists. The population of the village is effectively doubled on the day of the performance, which happens five days a week during the season, and most tourist seats are sold as packages, including accommodation in or near the village. It is notable, and again in the traditions of the cycle play, that the actors have remained essentially amateur, with the only remuneration being expenses payments designed to cover the disruption to their normal working life. There is no sense of stardom being achieved by taking a main part and for the vast majority of those involved life just goes back to normal after the end of the season until the preparations start for the next production about eight years later. But it is clear that the village has benefited from the international popularity of the passion play. Indeed it is one of the main reasons why such a small and isolated village still thrives. In keeping with the tradition of the cycle place, the passion play is the property of the community of Oberammergau, as expressed through the town council. And the council takes all the decisions relating to it. In the year prior to performances, a Passion Play subcommittee is established, as well as the town councillors, the director, the co-director, the director of music, and the local Catholic priest and the Lutheran pastor are all members. It is the council that has to put up the capital needed to finance the production. Profits from the play have always been ploughed back into facilities for the benefit of the community, residents and visitors alike. These include a recreation centre with its indoor and outdoor alpine swimming pools, the many parking and public facilities that are needed, and a community centre which includes a theatre and a concert hall as well as a restaurant. The village also boasts a thermal clinic for the treatment of rheumatic diseases, a popular feature in many German towns in the area, and a rehabilitation centre. Education has always benefited, especially for music and drama, with an eye to nurturing the future of the Passion Play. The Oberammergau Passion Play was born out of a time of war and pandemic, and has survived several repeats of these events over the centuries. In this century, it has shaken off aspects of its past that no longer sit well with what we can hope is a more enlightened and inclusive society. That change may seem slow, but it has quickened in the last 20 years. When the current director tried to introduce a Protestant on stage for the first time in 1990, it prompted a petition for his removal. In 2022, the cast was more diverse than ever, including some refugee children taken in by the village under Germany's open refugee policy following events in the Middle East and Afghanistan. The Oberammergau passion play will always be a primarily religious play, telling a well-known story in a traditional way but its current custodians are well aware of the need for the theatre of all kinds to balance tradition with the need to speak to the contemporary world, so I feel sure that we will see changes in future productions. It remains a true and unique theatrical experience, whatever your view on religion. 412,000 tickets were sold for the 2022 production. That's roughly 91% capacity and an enviable record given the post-pandemic reduction in tourism, particularly from the USA. The significant slack in ticket sales was taken up by a 20% increase in German-speaking visitors compared with the 2010 season. When the call was put out for Germans to rediscover the play, they answered it. Plans for the 43rd production in 2030 are not public yet. But there seems little doubt that this ancient tradition that is still a living work of theatre will continue on towards its 400th anniversary. Mm